Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye. And Mayu cannot be here with us today. It feels like we're just going back and forth. He does one preamble. We do one together. And then I do one preamble. It's hard to schedule our time together during the uh, summer vacation. He's out in cottage right now. So you'll just have to do with me to give you some updates on my end of things. Mayu and I, and actually a partner, own a property in Windsor, single family house. And as we mentioned in a few of the podcasts, we're looking at selling off our single family. The thought process behind that is, is that a lot of them are sort of cash flow break even, maybe positive a couple bucks and other ones are negative a couple bucks. And we're paying interest only on a lot of these single family homes because we have a static variable rate mortgage, which obviously, as you guys know, um, that means that there's no equity pay down. And thus, if there is no cash flow, no equity pay down, we're really just banking on appreciation, which is which isn't worth it, in my opinion, in this current market environment, because we don't know when appreciation is going to come, given that the Bank of Canada has shared sentiment that they're going to hold rates for longer. And so as a result of that, we're deciding just to sell off our underperforming assets so that we have liquidity to be able to capitalize on opportunities as they come in the future. So with that property, the tenant wanted to move out. All we decided to do was some touch up. So we had to paint the house. There was a lot of touch up that needed to be done. The basement sort of looked like a dungeon. So we wanted to make it look more presentable. So we painted the blocks there. Obviously, at the end of the day, try to make the property as marketable as possible. And we're sort of in a weird environment at the moment where there are a lot of properties that are sitting on the market. There are a lot of offer presentations that are failing. So we were definitely skeptical when listing this property. We decided to go to the offer presentation route. And to our surprise, we still were able to get, I think it was three or four offers. And to be completely transparent, three of the offers were not that fantastic. And I believe all of them were conditional, if I'm not mistaken. One of them was, I think, 300, 350, 330, something along those lines. Like everything was ranging from 300 to 350. And they were all conditional. And then we had one offer come in that was a clean offer and it was at 400K. So all it really takes is one. And of course, if we didn't have the blind bidding system, as we do in Ontario, I'm sure that person likely wouldn't have bid the 400 seeing what the other offers came in at. But uh, that was a fantastic price that honestly beat our expectations. So we're really happy with that. And speaking of sales of property, we are selling another property at the moment, actually, I don't know if you guys listened to the podcast episode a long time ago. I don't remember what number it was, but we were talking about the Canadian Transit Corporation. I think it was, I think that's what it stands for, the CTC, uh, looking at buying out our property or expropriating it because they're building some sort of parking lot for a new bridge project or something like that in, in Windsor. There's a second bridge being being built up and they need a parking lot and our property is located where they would like to build the parking lot. They already own a vast majority of the properties on that street. A lot of them are boarded up and vacated, but we have one of the few properties there that is still operating as a student rental. Prime location, literally like 30 seconds from the University of Windsor. It's a really, really good location. So after 
months and months of negotiation. And obviously we got a lawyer on retainer as well, because with stuff like this, you don't know what the legality is. So you, you might as well hire a lawyer. You're probably going to get a good ROI on that. So our lawyer facilitated the negotiation. And after, I feel like it's been seven months now. No, sorry, longer than seven months. I'm going out of control at nine months now, I want to say, of us going through the process. We finally have an offer on the table and we're waiting for them to sign back. But uh, all looks good and we will keep you updated on that. But happy we got rid of that property or in the middle of getting rid of it because Windsor is having the rental licensing and there's a lot of supply building up on the market there. So it's another way for us to cash out. And we were able to sell it at pretty much close to peak prices. So we're really happy with the price that we got. It's probably close to February 2022 prices, maybe maybe 5 to 10% lower than that. But prices around that area have declined much more than that. Anyways, we're going to just jump into this podcast now so you don't have to hear me ramble on. We have a special guest, Danielle Shazon. And you guys probably already know who she is or maybe heard her name around. She's all over on Instagram and has a good social media presence. Danielle has actually been investing in real estate for the better part of a decade, uh, starting off with fixing and flipping real estate at scale and then branching off into multifamily investing and started up her coaching program recently. And also recently is looking at getting into development deals. So have a lot going on in her plate. And this is a really great episode. We get into so many different topics. Whether you're a newer intermediate investor, I think you'll get value out of it. We talk about the mistakes that investors are making today, what we're seeing in the investment community and how to pivot from certain strategies. We talk about cash flow management. That's a big one for real estate investors because although we have equity build up, although we have profitable fix and flips, managing your cash is another issue on its own. And anyone of scale will probably know that's a big headache. So we get into the topic of that. We get into the topic of multifamily investing. Why Danielle ended up selling most of her multifamily investments. We talk about systemizing businesses because she has multiple and so many other topics. I'm sure you guys are going to get a lot of value from this. And before we jump in, just make sure to rate us five stars on Apple, five stars on podcast. Share this with a friend if you enjoy it. Honestly, our numbers have been pretty stagnant right now. So, I mean, Mayu and I are not sure if we're getting any new listeners or what's going on. So please show us some love by leaving us a five-star review to give us some confidence there. Uh, anyways, I'm sure you guys will enjoy this episode. So let's jump right into it. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Danielle Chason. I'm pronouncing that as close as I can. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect, Austin. Awesome. So Danielle, so for anyone that doesn't know you, we've chatted a bunch of times already, but for anyone that might not know you, why don't you give everyone a quick background on yourself, how you got started in real estate and, and kind of what you're up to. Wow. Okay. How far back do we go? I Great beginning. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So I'm an East Coast girl, which explains why I talk a lot and also why I'm super friendly. And so I grew up on the East Coast of Canada and the Maritimes went and partied my 20s out west in Calgary. And then I landed here when I started adulting in Ontario. So built up my family through um, my 30s. And then when I was doing that, I was helping my former life partner with his businesses and building up his businesses. And he's in the construction space. And while we were building our family. So I am a mother of three, very busy. They're teenagers now. So different stage of life. But as things fell apart, 
with their dad, I had to decide what I was going to do with myself because I was busy spending time building up his businesses with him, thinking that was my forever plan. And then reality kicked in and always had a draw to real estate. As we were building his businesses, we also started building a rental portfolio and I love rentals. And then I heard this ad on the radio to talk about flips and how to get into flipping. And that was back in 2013. And then that's when I ended up making the shift from being an amateur investor, being a landlord and having a few rental houses to going into being a sophisticated investor. So I've been doing this. I've been investing for 20 years, buying my first property in 2003. But I really didn't start this as a business or as a career until 2013. And that's really where I dove in. I spent two full years just educating before I started flipping in 2015. And I mean, I immersed myself. I invested heavily in myself first because I knew that was the way to avoid mistakes and costly errors that are big in real estate because we're dealing with big numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's the history. Yeah. (laughs) And most people don't really know that history because we don't talk about that. We talk about what have you done in real estate and not really go back. So that's kind of like the Coles Notes version if you want to know a little bit about me. But yeah, as far as my real estate career as a sophisticated investor, yeah, started out flipping, did that for five years. COVID happened. I shifted gears. The world was falling apart with COVID and the real estate market was going to crash all of this. And so I decided I wanted to go into acquisitions. And so I just went into acquisition mode for 18 months, bought a bunch of properties, and then realized that I went into acquisition mode knowing what I know, because we always tend to go back and default to what we're comfortable with. And I was comfortable with distressed properties. And so I ended up buying myself a whole bunch more flips. They were just on a bigger scale because they were all multis and realized that's not what I wanted. And so now I'm taking that all apart and rebuilding. I'm going to be rebuilding the real estate business. But in the interim, while I'm transitioning with that, I'm finally able to have my time back with not having all these rental properties and flip properties on the go. I have my time back to relaunch strategic success, which is my coaching side of things online. So that instead of doing one-to-one, I can do one-to-many. So that's why I have like strategic success. And everybody's like, oh my God, Daniel, what are you doing? Like you're saying you're not busy in real estate right now. Like on the realty side, what are you doing? I'm really wanting to help others and empower others in these really hard times to be able to be successful because things are dangerous. I mean, people need a coaching before, but you can make a lot of mistakes for the last decade and get away with it because the market was correcting it for you. And now there's very little room for error in order to make money in real estate. So if you make a mistake, the market isn't going to pick it up for you and save you. So you really need to educate yourself, understand what you're doing, and then move forward with caution in order to be successful in real estate in today's market. Yeah, I couldn't have said that last part better myself. You're even finding good operators who've had success for decades get caught offside because of how quickly the market has changed. And we're going to get into that topic a little bit more, but sort of diving into your journey when you were starting off getting into fixing and flipping properties. So you had a little bit of construction knowledge from your partnership. And from there, I guess that's how you got comfortable with flipping. Now, how did you finance these flips a while ago? Because private money wasn't as accessible, I would imagine, as today. So what was the roadmap when you were flipping at that point in time? 
And has a lot changed from flipping today or is it a lot of the principles still the same? Yeah, so I love all of those questions. So let's start with how I financed it, because that is a big question for a lot of people who get into real estate. And you're right, private money wasn't as readily available back then as it is now. However, having said that, private money is hard to lock up for new experienced people right now because the private money is really vetting properly who they're lending to because they know it's a riskier market and there's less margin for error that I mentioned before. And so if you don't have that history, it's a lot harder to show if you don't have that experience to show that you're able to deliver. So finding that private money on your first or second flip is going to be a little bit more difficult. So what I did, you could do it the way I did it because the way I did it back then was I did it with my former life partner. He financed the first two properties. So that gave me a lot of experience. I had him too, which was nice because they were in construction, right? And so he was coming in doing the construction part. He did the financing part. And so it was a lot easier for me to just focus on applying my knowledge and what I learned and grow with my experience without having to worry so much about all the risk because I negated a lot of that risk by bringing in an equity partner. So there's a difference a lot of people don't realize. There's a difference between a capital partner and an equity partner. So my lenders are all capital partners to me. Those is when you're borrowing the money for a rate of return, you promise them a certain amount of interest over a certain term, which is a timeline, and then you pay them back with their interest. So you pay them back their principal plus their interest. But when you have a capital partner, as in an equity partner, then they own half of the project. It doesn't matter who's on title. They own half of the project. And so when they come in and they're saying, okay, I'm going to put in some money and you're going to do the work. So their investment into the project is capital. Your investment is your time and your expertise. And so you bring those together. Then you're also sharing the risk and you're sharing the profit. Now, the one thing that you're giving up as a new investor bringing in an equity partner is you're giving up a lot more of the profit because you're going to give up half. I say half is typical, by the way. That's totally negotiable. It doesn't have to be half. Whatever you can negotiate with your partner is what you're going to get. But what's typical in the market for a JV partnership with an equity partner and a working partner is 50-50. It could be different. Like I wouldn't do 50-50 because I bring a lot to the table. So I would do a bigger split. But as a new investor, that's a fair start. So let's say it's 50-50. You're going to give up half the profits instead of, say, 12 or 14% on the capital they're bringing in, which is going to be a lot less of a payout. But you're also negating some of that risk because the equity partner is bearing that risk. So it's really important if you're going to do this at the beginning of your career and you want to get into that, I would highly suggest don't just find an equity partner who has the money. Find an equity partner who maybe has been there, done that, and don't want to do the work anymore. Somebody like myself or other real estate investors maybe that have moved on to bigger projects and they're dedicating their time to bigger things, or maybe they built a business and they have a restaurant or they got another another business venture, but they still want to invest in real estate. They just don't want to be the one doing the work because they're going to help you through that process and, and always be able to coach you and have support for you. So as you're implementing what you've learned and you're actually doing the flip, you have that kind of security blanket. And if you make a mess, then they can come in and help clean it up too. So that negates a lot of the risk as a new investor. 
And I'm telling you this because just last night I was on a call with a student who was a new student, didn't have the experience, got together with an equity partner, also didn't have the experience and they're underwater right now. So what happened is they ended up over renovating the project. So now what they put into it versus what the properties are worth is less. And now they're struggling trying to figure out how to fix this. So I'm helping him through that. But this is a very common narrative that you're seeing right now in the marketplace. So if you're a new investor and you want to do this, find an equity partner, but it'd be great to find an equity partner who has some experience to help you through it. Yeah, that totally makes a lot of sense because I've actually had this conversation with someone who has a pretty good cash reserves. And they asked me if I wanted to partner up with them on a flip, given I'm on the more, I wouldn't say I'm like intermediate to experience side. I didn't want to do an equity split and flipping, right? Typically, those who are willing to do an equity split and flipping are going to be the newer investors because they need to get their foot in the door. And the people who have the capital who are giving it out are typically experienced either business people or maybe they're very savvy in their job or they're savvy real estate investors. And so again, as you were mentioning, as you partnered up, you can leverage their knowledge as well going through that unless they want to lend it out. But a lot of them do want equity stake in these these clips. Uh, Maya, it looked like you wanted to say something and I started. No, no, I, I was just going to say, I think you broke it down really good. I think the other option which is kind of a hybrid that I've, I kind of started to see as the market was turning a little bit was people going, you know, we'll give you six, 7% on your money, plus maybe like 10, 15, 20% equity, right? So it's kind of that, that hybrid option. I was just curious what your recommendation was to that student in that situation. I know we're deviating a little bit from your own journey here, but I just got <laughs> curious what the solutions are that you'd recommended or, or possibilities. And the reason why we ask this is because people have asked Mayu and I, like we yeah. know so many people yeah. in a similar situation. Yeah. Yeah. So this one is, I need to, because this is given to me in confidentiality. And so I don't want to give out too much information on what was discussed, but ultimately I did tell him what I suggested is that he walk away and let the partner have all the profits on the back end. So he's going to walk away and get no money for the time that he's put into doing these three properties. But ultimately, he's gained a lot of knowledge and experience, right? But that's the fair thing to do because this partner that has the cash in then has the decision to make whether they want to sell for less or hold and just wait until the appreciation comes back. But I mean, these properties, it's a significant amount of money. There's details in here that I can't share. But this, to me, was the most fair resolution because they both made mistakes and they're both going to have to pay for it. That at the end of the day, when you're in a partnership, that's the way it is. Like one partner doesn't want to eat more than the other partner as far as like take on more of the risk or the consequences of it. But when you're in a partnership like that, it is shared. So let's say you're the working partner and you're like, but wait, I'm the one that did all the time. And I put in all my time. I understand that, but there's a cost that has to be involved for the consequences of not doing it in a way that was successful. Right? So there's a loss here. So that loss needs to be shared in order to do it fair. Like I'm all about doing things the right way and doing things fairly. Right. And so that is, to me, the most fair resolution. And then the partner on the other side that has the capital, then they can decide whether or not they want to hold and wait for the properties to come back up or if they want to sell and reinvest that money 
and recoup that money instead of get, cause listen, we don't know how long the appreciation will come back to meet where the principal amount was. Right. So it might make sense for that partner to dive into that scenario and say, well, maybe if I sell now and invest all of my money back in, and if I can invest it at 14% over the next two or three years, whatever you think that however long it's going to take to meet that threshold that the properties will appreciate at, can you make that money back by investing it? And then you have more control rather than gambling on the market, which I don't personally like. So if you can take control back, maybe selling makes sense. But again, that's something for that partner to kind of dive in. But that was what the solution that I had provided to the student. I was just going to say, it is a really good solution for your student. I, I don't want people to think that we're just saying, you know, leave the capital partner with the property either, right? But I think what you're saying is either way, there's a loss to be had here. And it sounds like the capital partner was okay to take 100% equity and just kind of hold on to it, knowing that the capital partner would have benefited from not having to have done too much work on it or time being spent here, right? So that could be the solution. Ultimately, I think partnerships is all just negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. Really just depends. You're going to be in scenarios that could get ugly, that could end amicably like this, right? And, um, you know, whatever you can avoid having lawyers involved, that that's ideal, right? So that's great. So going back to your story, because I'm kind of curious where you went from there. So you were flipping, obviously you had your, your ex-partner as a construction company and as an equity partner, right? Where do you go from there? How far did you take the flipping business? Like, were you doing multiple flips at the same time? I know you started in 2015, so it was a good period until 2017. So I'm kind of curious how that hiccup went as well. Um, but yeah, let's kind of keep going. <laughs> yeah. So I flipped for five years and during that time I did one at a time. So what I would do is I would spend, there's like three phases of a flip. There's the acquisition process, the renovation process and the disposition process. Right. And so one of the biggest mistakes that people do, by the way, if you want to get into flipping and you've never done it before, when you're flipping, you have to understand a flip isn't the time it takes to do a flip is not the time it takes to renovate. The time it takes to do a flip is from close to close which includes from the time of acquisition, and then you got to do your permits and get all your paperwork and your contractors and everything else in place. There's a lot of prep work before the renovation, and then there's the renovation. And then the disposition, back when I was flipping, I could sell a property and be, I could list it and sell it and be closed on it within 30 days. Now you're looking at back to a stable market, by the way, just for those of you that are listening, three months right now to sell a property I know it feels like a long time because for the last decade, we haven't had to wait that long to sell a property or buy a property, but that is actually a balanced, normal, healthy market. And so that is where we are at right now. So we're looking at, you have something on the market, maybe it sits for a month or six weeks. You've got another month to two before close. So make sure when you're running your numbers, if you want to do a flip that you have that three months window added on to however long you think it's going to take to complete the rental project. So a little bit of a sidebar there, but yeah, when I was selling, I mean, it was quick. Right. And um, when I did it, so the first phase, again, back to the three phases, I would go and I would acquire projects. So then while that project would be in the renovation phase, I would go and look for the next one. So I'd set up the renovations. And then once I got the guys going on that one, I would go and look for the next one. So by the time I would find the next property and get that one closed, the first renovation project would be in the closing out stage. So I'd be in the disposition, the rental would be done and I'd be selling it. So that by the time I start the renovation in the second one, then the guys would be done and they'd be going into that one. Does that make sense? So that I was always just moving my crew from one flip to the next. So I was doing one at a time in the beginning. You had your own in-house like 
contracting. Yeah. So when I first started, well, when I first started, it was my former life partners company that was doing it. Right. So, um, by the way, thought it would be easier, not necessarily because when the boss is your husband, (laughs) you know, ultimately I'm not a client. And so my jobs always came last. So they took way too long than they should have to get completed. So in hindsight, going back, if I could change it, I would absolutely do it with a contractor instead of doing it with him. But I learned a lot. And again, that was my security blanket. And that was what I needed to do at the time. So I don't regret doing that. But again, when you're dealing with a contractor, then you can get them in and get make sure that they're on your job to get the job done a lot quicker. So a lot of people want to do it with a partner who has a construction company. Well, their clients are going to come first, right? Or if you're doing the work yourself, it's going to take longer. So those two methodologies of doing it, they work, but you're going to be holding that property for a lot longer and time is money in a flip. And I didn't know that in the beginning. So you want to make sure that you can get in and get out as fast as you can. And the quicker that you can have that speed of implementation to completion, then the quicker you're going to be able to just rinse and repeat and generate more profit. So coming back to how I did it, that's how I did it was one at a time initially with his company. And then I started using contractors and then I had a crew that I ended up just hiring. So I had a a lead guy and then I had him, I hired him a laborer. And then if I needed extras, I actually used a temp agency. So like the cost of demo is ridiculous. So I used to use temp agency for demo so that I didn't, that was kind of my gift to my guys so that they didn't have to worry about doing all the heavy lifting quite literally. I would get four guys do demo in two days and be done with it. And so, and I would be there with them doing it because, well, it's kind of fun tearing shit up. So I'd be there with them in my steel-toed boots and just banging it out and making sure that things are running smoothly. And then I'd just make sure that I'd be looking for the next project and next property. So I'd be doing the underwriting and then rinse and repeat. So I was doing multiples at the end, but I had two burnouts. One thing that people don't realize is when you're flipping, it's a lot of work. And when you're the only one doing it and you got to manage everything, you got to pick the specs order the products, the delivery, go and make sure you're checking up on the guys, make sure things, the permits, all the paper, like all of that, um, setting up utilities, um, setting up the closing process, all of that. Like it was a lot. And so I ended up burning out twice, not once, but twice. So I knew something had to give during COVID. I had two projects on the go and I had two that were in the pipeline. So I was in the, I was building out the permit phases and the permit drawings and everything. So I was in that phase and the ones that were with the permits, the permits were at the city and both of them, they got approved the week after we had our shutdown. So my construction was shut down. My permits were shut down and I couldn't do anything because COVID shut us down for seven weeks. So that gave me time to really reflect back on what direction I want it to go in. Because here's what happens when you're super busy, you have very little time to take a step back and say, am I actually moving in the direction that I want to move in? And I didn't know at the time that I should be taking some pauses at least once a week to reflect back on what I'm doing to make sure that they're in alignment with where I want to go. And it's really, really important to do that. Otherwise, you get into a reactive phase, which is what I was doing. I was just reacting, getting things done that needed to get done at the time. And I really wasn't planning properly to be moving in the direction I wanted. 
So when we had that seven week shutdown, it gave me the opportunity to sit back and go, wait a minute, is this truly what I want to be doing? What was my plan when I started this? And my plan always was to use flipping, start flipping in entry-level homes, low-priced homes, learn the construction, make my mistakes on the lower-priced homes so that I could do one of two things, move into multifamily or move into high-end flips, meaning multimillion-dollar homes. And after flipping for five years, I knew multifamily was where I wanted to go. And so that's why I wrapped up. So the two that I had in the pipeline that I hadn't started construction on, I ended up offloading those to other investors who did very well. Both of them did very well on them. And then the two that I had that I was actually flipping at the time, they were both duplex conversions and they're both in my portfolio still. So I hung on to those two, but that I wrapped up what I was doing and then moved into the multifamily space. Then everything I was doing at that point was just focused on acquisitions of multifamilies. Indeed. There's a lot to break down there. And I just want to highlight a couple of quick points that you've made that I think is pretty relevant in today's market as well. So you mentioned that when you were operating your flipping business, you were focusing on lower cost entry level homes. And I suspect that's because if there's a downturn or anything shifts, people can still afford a lot of the time the entry level inventory, maybe not in Toronto. But if you're flipping in (laughs) Windsor, if you're flipping in Sudbury, if you're flipping in London, Ontario, a vast majority of people can still afford that entry level home, right? And again, if it corrects by 10%, if it corrects by 10% and it's only 500,000, that's not a ton of money when it corrects by 10% and it's a million dollars, right? That could potentially wipe someone from all of their capital. So it's something that I'm doing right now as well is focusing on that lower end flip during this market. What I wanted to ask diving into the multifamily space. So all of the flips were actually, let's continue on the flips a little bit. So you're doing one at a time, you have a staff. How do you afford to continue operating with the staff? Because it is expensive to have all of these people on payroll. And with flips, all of your costs incur at the beginning Mm -hmm. and you get paid off five or six months later. So it's almost like managing outside of profitability. You got to manage your cash flow with that sort of business. So when did you decide it was the right time to hire people? And how did you go about managing the cash flow aspect? Were there any sort of incidents during your flip when you're going through that journey where you've realized that like you might be cutting it tight in money? And, and what did you do in, in that situation? Wow. Great questions. I don't even know all questions. of these questions. <laughs> what were the awesome? So it was like, A, how did you money manage? B, what did you yes. hire people at the I feel like it was the third question there that I might have missed now. Yeah, the third is like, if the money got tight because yeah. of cash flow issues, like how do you how do you even go about solving that? Yeah, great question. So um, what I will say is this, I was blessed with having a big HELOC on my house. And so I leveraged everything. So I did the first two projects as JVs with my former life partner, but then moving forward, I ended up using private money. And I actually was working at trying to get credit from B lenders, but I just found it so tedious and I needed to close fast and I needed to move. So I ended up really quickly, I just moved away. I think I did one with them and with their fees and everything that they had and the loopholes, like very quickly, I realized out of convenience, I was willing to pay a little bit more and deal with private money. So I ended up working with private lenders very early to answer your question earlier on in the podcast. I got my private lenders initially through mortgage brokers. And that is a higher cost because there's a lot of fees when you're dealing 
through a mortgage brokerage and those private lenders will have points as well. So you got the points for the mortgage broker and you got points for the lender as well. When you're dealing with private lenders direct, typically you don't have that additional three, three and a half percent to pay on the money. So when I was doing this, I started networking it here locally and then I started speaking on stage. And so then people wanted to invest with me. So finding the private money was relatively easy. And so I just started dealing direct. So to answer your question, like, how did I get private money back then? It started out with mortgage brokers, but being in networking rooms is where I started connecting direct with private lenders. And by the way, here's the thing. You can go into networking rooms and come out and say, that didn't work. I didn't find any private lenders. I did. There's no, there's no private lender. Nobody wants to lend with me. That's because you didn't put it out there to the universe that you're looking for private lenders. You have to tell people what you need. So you always need to be selling. If you're not telling people, yeah, I'm looking for my next couple of partners, equity partners or capital partners in order to do the next three or four projects. If you don't tell people that, and if you're not singing it from the top of a mountain, how are they supposed to put their hand up if you're not putting it out there, right? So make sure you go put it out there. Make sure you let the world know what you're needing so that the universe can bring it to you. So you have to put it out there first so that the universe can return it. So anyway, so that, again, little sidebar, sorry, escrow a lot, guys. <laughs> so at the end of the day, that's how I got into dealing with private money. So when I started flipping, though, private money was really hard back then to do renovation costs. So when you're over leveraging, we didn't have back then borrowing with private lenders based on the ARV. Back then, it was always only on the value of the property as is. And so I had to, I was just blessed with having this HELOC. What I'll tell you, if you're a new investor and you don't have a HELOC, talk to people in your network, your friends and your family that are close to you. Somebody has a home equity line of credit that can finance your renovation. So if your line of credit is at 8% and you give them 14, that's going to make the deal where as long as the numbers make sense, that's going to make the deal work for you so that you can actually get the project done. So that's what I did is I leveraged my HELOC and then, yeah, moving forward, I just rinsed and repeated, right? Now, having said that, there is a huge money game. People just don't talk about this. It's one thing to flip, but it's another to manage money. It's a whole different ballgame. And people get caught because they're not tracking anything and you've got to track it and you've got to stay on budget. And if you don't, you will get caught. You will. And again, in the market, when it was going up double digit returns annually, that was okay because if you made a mess and you overpaid or you over renovated, it wasn't a big deal because you'd make the money on the back end when you sold. Right. Now we don't have that option. We don't. The market is not going to save you. So you really need to be organized. So what I did. When I was starting to do a lot and I wasn't able to keep track of things, I ended up hiring a bookkeeper locally who came to my house every Tuesday and she spent six to seven hours every Tuesday and put everything into QuickBooks for me. And then part of the process was before she left, she printed out reports that I asked from her so that I knew what was going to be due upcoming and what was outstanding, and also how much work we've paid out on the property so far. I would be able to gauge where I was at in the renovation costs. Now, ideally, you might want to do this weekly, but every two weeks was a really good sweet spot for me 
And it was enough to keep her busy, like for the whole day was once every two weeks, she would come in and put all the invoices, cut some checks for me. And then anything that was recurring, like a mortgage payment or an interest payment to a private lender, that would all get tallied up ahead of time in QuickBooks. One of the reports that I had was, I want to know what I have to pay in the next month. And so all of that would show up as well. So I would see what's outstanding to contractors based on quotes. And I would see all of those outstanding interest payments as well. So, and then, you know, and then you've got your other holding costs, which I knew roughly monthly what it would be for the utilities and the gas and all of that. So that's how I managed my money. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're not a bookkeeper or you're not used to managing money to that level, you got to bring somebody in. And that is your first line of defense from making a big costly mistake. Really? I'm not even gonna lie. Like I've been in so many scenarios where I'm just like, I don't know. I have all these obligations. I don't know what they are and when they're due and what's going on. And then I just whip out my whiteboard and start doing like a weekly schedule and writing down, okay, 20 grand out this day and, and so on and so on. And yeah, honestly, even when you're investing in your burn investing on multiple properties, right? Yeah. Money management is significantly underrated. I think part of it is, and we talked about briefly about property sitting on the market now for like two, three months. I think it's significantly more difficult to do when you've got private money on your flips, right? And you've got expensive money at like 10, 12, whatever percent and points you're paying, right? And you've got deadlines on them if you took like a, the wrong term and it's a six month and your private's coming up for renewal, right? All that kind of stuff, unfortunately, is what forces people into scenarios where they, they sometimes have to take a loss or they feel the need to take a loss, right? So that is kind of keep in mind as well. So the bookkeeper, it sounds like was your first hire. I do want to touch on, I think the temp agency move was a very interesting move just because like even like junk removal, some tasks that are not as highly skilled, right? Um, you can, it definitely sounds like a really good move. And I've heard of people going on Kijiji and stuff like that. So that's kind of similar, but I'm curious. So going from flipping to multifamily, you're now going from something that's very active income money in your pocket. Yes. It's only every four five, six months. Right. But it's still significant profit that you're taking out versus burn investing in multifamily. You're essentially, you're flipping to yourself, which means unfortunately you're not taking the profit out, right? Right. What kind of changes does that mean for your business? How does then the money management side get fixed? Did you start up another active income? Like, is that kind of how you made everything work or what's the, what's the secret behind that? <laughs> yeah. So with a multifamily, I was able to buy them with conventional financing with a B lender. So that was a big difference there. And I also brought on partners. So I had two active partners with me. So that also, because I'm a full-time investor, another thing that investors struggle with is their income. So like the banks would never, even though the multifamilies qualify under their own umbrella, because it's based on the NOI on the property, they still need to make sure that you're solid. So my credit was great, but I didn't have any income. And so, because everything is all in the companies and in the properties, right? So what would happen was uh, bringing on these active partners who had solid income. It was very easy for us to get those B lenders. And then we would do private money in order to do the down payment and or the reno cost. And then that's how we did the multis. So it was a really good system. But, you know, with 2022 happening and all of the cash flow, we went into markets that were high cash flowing properties. Thank goodness. And by the way, That was, again, a little bit of insight on my part because I knew that the market couldn't stay up forever and it was up for an extended period. We had been in an up market for longer than historically it stays up. So I knew at some point the ball was going to drop. So I wanted to be in cash flowing properties. Having said that, I have no insight 
at all that it was going to go up so fast over such a period of time. Like historically, this has never happened where rates have gone up so fast in such a short period of time. So a lot of us got caught, myself included, in that space. And then property values dropped, right? So we got a double whammy. Cash flow went down, property values went down. So like with the property values going down, even if you want to reamortize your mortgage, if your mortgage was a relatively new mortgage, they're reamortizing on a lower purchase or a lower value and you couldn't even reamortize. There's a lot of people that got hurt by no fault of their own. I want to be clear on that. The market caught a lot of people. And I'll give you an example because Austin, you mentioned this earlier where, you know, 10% on a $500,000 property is 50 grand, right? It's a hit for sure. It's a hit. My portfolio was over $10 million. And at the end, it was at 8.3. I took almost a two, just shy of a $2 million hit on the portfolio. That's a massive hit when you have that many doors. So if you're a small investor that has two or three properties and the cash flow went down because these interest rates went up, you're going to have to find a way to come up with a, maybe a few thousand dollars to survive. But when you have 68 doors and you're trying to survive that, that's a whole nother level. And that's something that a lot of investors weren't prepared for because most investors in today's market have come into the market in the last 10 years. So they've never gone through a full market cycle, meaning they've got a lot of experience building and making money, but they don't have a lot of experience on how to weather a storm. And that's what we're going through right now, right? And I guess my question on the flipping going into multifamily is you're losing an active income, right? Because like as much as real estate cash flows it, myself and Austin, like we talked about it multiple times where we run our numbers and something's supposed to cash flow $1,000 a month. And we look at it at the end of the year, we're like, how did we lose money on this property? Like, what the hell happened here, right? That's just the reality of it. A lot of times cash flow doesn't go according to the projections that we want, right? So do you charge like fees on your like multifamily properties? Like that's one model that I've heard from people. Because I think a lot of people want to, want to do the entire real estate investing thing full time, right? And the reality is like Austin has a wholesaling business. I've got my mortgage business. I was flipping for a while as well, right? We do things to give us active income so that we can continue to invest in real estate at the same time, right? Not just from the mortgage qualifying, but like needs money, right? So so that's what I was more so curious about. Like, how did you go from that switch in the business? You just completely stopped flipping, which is your active income stream to now what is considered like passive income, right? So yeah, I'm just curious about that switch. Yeah. So I had some properties that I leveraged in order to have cash for my yeah. disposable income. So I call it disposable income. And then your generational wealth, right? Your legacy, what you're building moving forward. So the cash flow, here's the thing. If you're listening and you don't get anything else out of this podcast, take this away. Forget about cash flow when you're buying a property because there is no cash flow. There might be cash flow on the bottom line at the end of the month that there's money coming in and you pay your, your holding costs or whatever on the property. But at the end of the year, when everything is tallied up, what you're considering cash flow typically goes right back into the property or into the management of the property. Meaning just to do your financials on that property, on that company that owns the property, you're looking at $2,500, $3,000. Like do the math on that. That's $200 plus a month that you need to be cash flowing just to do your financials at the end of the year. That's not including repairs and maintenance, right? Repairs and maintenance, you gotta be looking at half a percent of the value of the property at least to be putting back into repairs and maintenance. 
So like, and this is where a lot of people, they are like, I'm going to quit my job, go into real estate investing. I'm going to buy a whole bunch of properties and cash. No, the cash flow game comes long-term year seven to 10. If you don't refinance, but if you have a new mortgage, if you have a new mortgage, and when I say refinance, refinance to like pull equity, to pull out some equity, right? Not refinance to like extend your amortization period back out. That will actually create more cash flow for you if you're now stabilized and you want to live off cash flow. However, if you're refinancing to pull out equity to keep building, if you're in build mode, there is no cash flow for you to live off of. So here's the secret. I had that a little bit of money from properties that I could live off of. But now I'm like, hmm, 2022 happened. And I'm like, yeah, I need some income. So where's my disposable income coming from? I don't have any flips going on. Where's that coming from? So I was doing like the coaching and everything else and it wasn't structured. And I've always wanted to be one to many since I started this because I really feel that I can make a big impact on people and helping people. And so by offloading the portfolio was a big, big, big decision to make. And one of the driving factors to that decision was, number one, I have a whole bunch of small properties that I don't want. This is not the asset class that I want to be in anymore. So I'm leveling up, right? It's a lot of time to manage that many doors over multiple properties. It was 18 properties, right? And so one, two, in six different markets, right? So I had four different property managers. And so like having that many properties and that many markets is a lot of time. Even though you have a property manager, you have to manage the manager. You still got the LTV that you need to go to for if there's evictions or any non-paying tenants, right? And so there's, there's always issues. I mean, I've gotten city work orders that seems to be regular that comes into the mail because when I bought these multifamily units, I bought tenants. I have grandfather tenants. They're not vetted by me or my property managers. So it's a lot of work. And I'm like, no, this is not the asset class I want. This is not the structure that I want. And I want my time back. And so by offloading everything, now I realized, and by the way, also through 2022, a big lesson for me was we hear about multiple streams of income. And I knew that that was always something that I wanted to do and build, but I was so busy in the real estate side, flipping and then building my portfolio that I didn't have time to commit to building a business. And so that's also while I'm transitioning out of this real estate class into the next class, which is going to be purpose-built multis and self-storage while I'm doing that transition period, I have my time back where I can build a business around the coaching and the education. So I'm building this real estate platform so that I do have income coming in that I'm not relying on real estate and being exposed to the real estate market and what risks that comes with that. So there's a lot to be said. I kind of think if I looked back, if I could change anything, I probably would have built the business a lot sooner because I just didn't understand how valuable having a separate income coming in to take care of that disposable income, right? But at the same time, I get to do this and make an impact on people. I get to continue working within my space and doing what I love. So it's completely in alignment. It's a vertical integration that is definitely going to be beneficial, not just for me, but everybody that I'm helping. Yeah, you made a pretty important point there. A lot of people are one foot in, one foot out and um, doing multiple things, shiny object syndrome, or even doing, even like for myself, I find myself in that position a lot of times, right? Sometimes I'll be flipping, 
wholesaling, buying, multifamily, cash keys, like there's so many things going on one time. And we find that the most successful investors will totally pivot their strategy and go all in into something that aligns with their value. So we had Sarah Etter on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. She had a ton of joint ventures, sold them all off and almost exclusively just focused on her new venture in multifamily investing. And it sounds like you're going through the same sort of transition. So it's interesting to hear other experienced investors doing the same thing in that sense. Just a question for you, like coaching a ton of students, being involved in the real estate market for such a long time, what are you seeing in the market of strategies that work, right? Because also we don't want to encourage people to just sit on the sideline. There's always moves to be made. So what are you seeing that works well in today's market? Well, that's a bit of a loaded question. And I'm going to tell you the reason why is because even if a strategy is effective, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And so one of the biggest problems that I see is that they go, oh, wow, Danielle was really successful in doing flipping. And I'm going to do that, too, because that makes sense to me. But if you have a nine to five job in one market and you're doing a flip in a sub market somewhere else, like you could be like I'm in Milton. Let's say I, I live and work in, a, in Milton. And the prices here maybe aren't really good for flipping. So then I have to flip somewhere else. So maybe I'm looking at London or maybe I'm looking at Cornwall or maybe I'm looking at Windsor or maybe I'm looking at Niagara. And so if I'm going to all these markets that are significant drive, when you're talking about having to drive over an hour one way to any one of your projects, in the beginning, it doesn't seem like it's a long drive. But I'm going to tell you right now, it becomes tedious very fast. Ask me how I know. My first flip, I'm in Milton. My first flip was two hours in Port Hope, east of me. My second flip was two and a half hours in Sarnia, west of me. And I did them both at the same time. So I had five hours between the two projects that I was working on. And it just eats up your time. It's just not really effective use of your time. And so if you're working nine to five and you're going into flipping and you're having to do it in a market that's affordable, you're not going to be able to hold your contractors accountable because when do the contractors work? They work seven to five, eight to five on site. If you're lucky, if you're not there, the hours might be 10 to four or 10 to three, right? And so when are you going to go? And they work Monday to Friday, not the weekends. So you can go evenings and weekends only to go check up on the guys and meet with them and hold them accountable and have conversations over what needs to be done, what needs to be repaired, what needs to be adjusted, all of that. You can't be there on site. So even though flipping is a great strategy, and I, I still think now last year, 2022, in the summer of 2022, June happened. And I was like, guys, nobody should be flipping right now because nobody knows where the market is going. And it doesn't sound like they're stopping. They're full on. And I knew that at the time. So I said flipping wasn't good because it was too risky because we couldn't adjust our projections well enough to be able to foresee where they were going. So yeah, flipping 2022, bad strategy. Now things have balanced out a little bit. I think flipping is a great strategy. You just need to be more conservative. But is it a great strategy for that person that's a high income earner that works nine to five? They can get the financing really cheap to help, which they need to, because if you're doing private right now on a flip, you're looking at 14, 15%, like you're getting killed. So trying to make those deals work is really hard paying private money. So you really want to leverage the bank money, the cheaper money, if you can, because that's going to help you make that flip work. But 
high income earners can get that, but high income earners have a nine to five. So is it the right strategy for that person? I don't know. So it's really dependent. And I'm really cautious about answering that question because there's still a lot of great strategies out there, but you have to pair the strategy to you and what works for you, right? So RTOs are still a great strategy. I think at the end of the day, you're not going to get the appreciation right now that we'd had in the past with RTOs with rent to own, but you're definitely going to get some cash flow and it's a way to start building your cash reserves to start doing bigger things. And that is great for somebody who's a high income earner who has a limit on their time, right? So they can put a lot of time, they can get that property under contract, they can leverage the cheap money. And then if they can do the RTO strategy, it works well. But somebody who's flipping really needs to have more time or flexibility in their job in order to do the flip, right? So there's different strategies that are working well. Wholesaling right now, there's a lot of people in pain. So wholesaling is really doing good. Having said that, some wholesalers are coming to me and saying they can't find anything and other wholesalers are killing it. What's the difference? The difference is your negotiation. So if you want to wholesale, it's not as easy to just, you know, say, okay, look, I'll buy your house cash and we'll close in 30 days. You have to be able to negotiate with that person and really position it so that it's in their best interest. So you got to be really good at what you're doing in order to really make it happen, right? Unless you find somebody who's in a lot of pain, if they're in a lot of pain, then it's definitely easier. And your negotiation skill doesn't have to be on point. But when it comes to um, dealing directly with the seller for wholesaling, you really, I mean, you're in sales, so you should understand sales. Don't look at real estate, look at sales. You should be educating in yourself, investing in yourself on how to negotiate, how to conduct a sales process, how to talk to people. Communication is big for that. NLP is priceless when it comes to negotiation. So you should be looking up neuro-linguistic programming and understanding that and how to position and talk to people. So again, it depends on the person. It depends on their skill set. It depends on their resources. It depends on their experience as far as whether or not that's the right strategy for them. Whether the strategy works in the market or not, that's a different question altogether. That's awesome. I think you said it really well. And uh, I went through the same thing. I used to drive my flips every week or every other week. One of either myself or my partner would go. And really when we lost money, I mean, the last flip we did, we lost money, but that was also the market turning. But that one, it took longer than it should have because we weren't visiting the property nearly as much. And we were just kind of complacent. We were relying on the contracting team because it was the same team. But then they start to, you know, do two jobs at the same time and like, where are they really spending the time and so on and so on. Right. So, and I also think like a lot of times as investors, we talk about birds and we talk about multifamily and this and that, and everyone just assumes, you know, there's, there's kind of like one narrow path. Right. But it's, it's reality is if you want to buy with CMHC and insured deals and don't buy a bird, buy a turnkey property, keep life simple. Right. If you're trying to do Airbnb, don't even buy real estate, just do the arbitrage model. Right. So there's so many different ways or avenues, I guess, right. It's just figuring out what the right, 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 right route is for, for the right person. So Danielle, I think this is a great episode. It definitely uh, went longer than we normally do, but uh, <laughs> I think we covered a lot of different topics. And, you know, at the end of the podcast, we usually like to ask your guests two questions. So the first question is, uh, what piece of advice do you have for a newer investor in, in today's market? Okay. So Mayu, if I can come back to that in two seconds, only because I don't like to have questions unanswered. Okay. Because when you listen to a podcast, and the host asks a question and the guest didn't answer. It's a little bit irritating because you get the question and you're like, oh, I can't wait to hear. That's a great question. And then the answer never comes. There's two questions that were asked that we just didn't get to. So I'll keep it nice and short because we are over time. But 
Austin, you asked me, was a scenario when you're short on cash and how did you handle it? So, and that's a big one for people because it does happen. And the last thing you want to do is run out of cash and have no reserves in order to complete the work. Too many times people run out of cash. They think they get very comfortable. They think it'll never happen to them. I'm telling you, it will happen to you, especially if you're doing multiple flips. And here's the other thing too. If you're putting in multiple offers and you're like putting offers on properties, offers on properties, and then you're putting deposits on those properties and you think you're going to get that deposit money back in two days, good luck. Like sometimes it, I've gone three months before I got a deposit back and I had to chase and chase and chase. It does happen. And so like you need to make sure you have reserves. My reserves were credit cards. So I was using my HELOC for the down payment for the renos, but I always had access to cash through credit cards. And I did tap into them. And then I will tell you, like I had tapped into them where they were almost like, I'm like, oh my God, I really need to sell this property (laughs) so that I can make this happen. Right. But it's also good to just continually build your relationships with other lenders. So keep going into those rooms, keep making those connections, keep talking about what you're doing. So people can see what you're doing. Like everybody knows I flipped for a long time because I talk about it. You wouldn't know that if I didn't talk about it, right? So you need to put it out there so that let's say I did need bridge financing till one property closed because you don't get, Austin, you made a great point and I'm gonna, I'm gonna repeat it because you said it very fast. I'm gonna repeat it because it's so important. People don't realize when you're flipping, if you've never flipped before, you don't think about this because you don't have the, hindsight to think about this, where from the time of acquisition to the time of disposition, so close to close, the only thing happening when it comes to the money aspect is money out, money out, money out, money out. There is no money in until you sell. That's it. So you need to make sure you've got enough cash to finish the project and you have reserves because you will go over it happens way too often. And so like I've done it, ask me how I know. So at the end of the day, you want to make sure you've got something you can tap into if needed. The other thing is too, is I got a big RSP account. I could have tapped into that if I needed to and never did. I used my credit cards. And as far as credit cards, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you get something in the bank from the bank that says, Hey, you got an, an opportunity to raise your credit limit, or you've got an offer for a new credit card. I did this. And this was my rule always say yes, but I only ever said yes. If it was pre-approved, I'm going to repeat that if it's pre-approved. And the reason why is because they're not doing credit checks and it doesn't look like you're trying to build credit. So if it's pre-approved, accept it, use it a few times here and there, pay it off, wait until they, you know, so I had lines of credit. I had credit cards that were constantly, I had, by the way, revolving lines of credit too, not just credit cards, but I kind of put that in the same space. So I would, always take it because when you need the money is typically when the banks won't give it to you. So you want to have that access. And then the other thing that's really beneficial too is, and I used to always do this to open up some cash that I didn't have to pay on. So when you're getting these offers for balance transfers, I would always take advantage of those. So I would go to the bank. Let's say I had a balance transfer offer on a credit card. I would go to another credit card, do a cash advance on that, then do the balance transfer from the other one. So now I can unlock that money. So if I had $20,000 that I was able to do a balance transfer on, I would take another credit card, withdraw that $20,000, use the balance transfer, pay that down, 
pay zero interest. There is a fee. There's always a fee. It's one to 2%. Usually I've seen three recently where there's a fee for that, but that's one way of borrowing for a flat fee of one to 3%. And then that's usually for a year. That's a long time. And so that gives you money to play with a little bit. Now, don't do that if you're bad with money because you have to pay it back. Okay. So again, there's a money game when it comes to running a business and especially in flipping that people don't talk about. So that's what I did when I was short on cash. So I always had that reserve between my lines of credit and my credit cards. That was always my backup plan. And yes, I got some a cup twice. It's happened to me twice where I had too many, too many projects. And I was like sweating going, oh my God, I need to finish this one and sell it because I'm starting to like get to the end here. And this is not looking good. So um, the other question that you asked was when to hire. This one's going to be a really quick answer. If the thought crosses your mind, should I hire a bookkeeper? Then you already should have hired a bookkeeper. If the thought crosses your mind, should I hire a contractor? You've already passed the time when you should have hired the contractor. Should I hire an admin? You've already passed the, like, if the thought crosses your mind, you should be putting an ad. That's when you should hire. So coming back to your question, my Sorry, did you want to unpack that or is that no, good? No, no, no. I, I, think, I think that was really well said. I think, uh, I think you outlined both of the answers. Um, I think a lot of this podcast was very relatable for newer investors, but I think more so talking about the market, just because we've dabbled in the market, we've dabbled on changes and how we've all kind of pivoted and, and ups and downs. But someone that's truly getting started in today's market, meaning like they're looking to buy their first, second, maybe third property. What kind of advice would you leave them with today or, or you know? Be conservative be conservative. It still works. It still works. And we're not in a terrible market. It's just not great because everything is perspective. And we're looking at today's environment, comparing it to what it was in 2021 and 2019 and 2018. Right. So the perspective is, wow, it's pretty crappy today because it was so great in those years. Right. Real estate still works. And we're just kind of in a more balanced market. It's not a recession, guys. It's not a recession. Could we hit that? Possibly. I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to pretend to, and and I don't like speculating, so I'm not going to pretend that I have a crystal ball. I don't. What I will say, though, is that historically, for long-term investing, you will make money on real estate and you will make a better return and outperform what you will do in the financial markets. And so you just need to make sure that you have the education, you have the resources, and you have the network to implement any strategy that you want to get into. And that's how you negate the risk. And that's how you successfully invest in real estate. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Just because real estate works doesn't mean it works for everybody. It is not successful for everybody. So how do you negate that risk? There's two jobs that I have. Anytime I invest in real estate, there's only two things that I'm looking at, at doing. My number one job is limit liability and reduce risk in anything that I do. And if I can focus on that and stay focused on that, I'm protecting my investors. I'm protecting the tenants who live in the properties. I'm protecting the contractors and everybody else who I hire within my organization. So if I can limit liability and reduce risk, and I do this through being systematic, by being diligent, by not being hands-off. One of the biggest mistakes is that somebody hires a professional, like you said, Mayu, you Mm -hmm. hire a contractor and then you just let them do their thing. No, you need to manage everything that you do. 
because everybody needs to be managed, yourself included. And that comes in handy when you have a partner, because then they can hold you accountable to what you need to be doing. But at the end of the day, the real estate investing strategy will work in almost any market. Real estate investing itself, maybe not specific strategies, right? Depending on where you are in the cycle. However, it will do well if you perform well. Sure. I guess for your own business, obviously with the market changing, we've, uh, you know, touched a little bit on how you're pivoting, but where do you see your business going in the next, you know, three to five years, right? And I know you talked about multifamily storage studies and obviously coaching is part of it, but we didn't really get to dive too deep into it. But, you know, where do you kind of see your growth predominantly in it? Yeah. You know what? So it's definitely going to be in strategic success. And then when I rebuild on the realty side, I'm going to be rebuilding a team on the realty side. And the thing is, is that I'm going to be in a position where, because the coaching business is exploding and just going like, I am not limited geographically anymore because of having the online platform. And so I'm not just going east to west, but I'm also heading south. I'm not there yet because I'm still building the foundation of what I'm doing, but I intend to bring this on a massive scale. So that is really the core of what I'm doing right now. And I'm doing this over the next 24 to 36 months where it's just going to be me being very intent. And what you said, Austin, just being hyper-focused instead of trying to do three or four or five different things, this is all I'm doing. But when I get back into real estate, which I've already started conversations because of the brand and my name, people do want to work with me. And I do have some reputation that I can leverage. I'm working with land developers right now at working out how we're going to structure doing the new purpose built because I want to build them. I don't want older properties anymore. I want new properties. And so now we're working together with, I have a system that I've developed on how this is going to work with land developers where there's five roles in the process of acquiring the land, redeveloping it, building it, managing it on the back end. Those are each roles and just creating beautiful partnerships with those roles so that we can have a conveyor belt style development process to have these self-storage and multi-family properties. And so that's, that's the direction we're going in. My role in that will be to raise capital and my partner's role will be to build the project. We're going to have a land developer who's going to, and we might even have an acquisition person and then a separate person that does the land development side, dealing with the city and dealing with all the paperwork. Or that could be the same person, because right now there's a lot of land developers that are doing those two roles and then a property manager. So we're going to have all of these people in place so that everybody has a role. And as it goes through, just like the flips, there was three parts of a flip. Well, here there's five parts of this. There's going to be somebody at every stage. I have learned the hard way, guys. I'm telling you, I have learned the hard way that I want to do everything myself. It is way better when you can partner with people that are in alignment with you that can just focus on the same task and rinse and repeat. And what happens is they get really good at doing it. And your job becomes a lot easier because you're not all over the place and having so many different colored balls in the air. It's always the same colored ball. It's always the same ball, right? And so it's a lot easier to juggle with one ball than it is with five or six. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like the systematic approach that you take with all of your businesses. Now, obviously, as you mentioned, learning lessons. And so you adapt from it. And one common thing that I've noticed with your businesses that I just want to bring to light is, is that you find partnerships where there's synergy. So flipping, you had the construction partnership. 
when it came to multifamily, you were partnered with other people who bought other unique skill sets to the table. And now you're pivoting towards your next three to five year goal. You're partnering once again with people who you'd be able to leverage skill sets off of. They're able to leverage you and your brand as well. So that's what it's all about in an entrepreneurship is, is finding the right partners who bring unique skill sets to the table. Danielle, this was an amazing episode. There was a ton of golden nuggets throughout. If people want to reach out to you, connect with you, learn more about you and your journey, how could they best do so? The best way is to reach out on social media. So either Instagram or Facebook, send me a DM and don't be shy, guys. Send me a DM and say, hey, can we connect? I saw you on the podcast and I'd love to chat with you a little bit further on whatever it is that came up for you on this podcast. And then I'll send you a link to my online booking system. And then we'll just have a quick 15 minute call, see how I can help you or clarify something. Because the last thing I want to do is say something and you're not clear on it. And I want to help you through that. So if you're not sure on something, yeah, reach out to me or if you want to, whatever it is, whether you want to partner with me or you want to work with me for me, I'm always hiring people. Again, putting the right people in the right seat is really important when you're running a business. So I'm always vetting people to work with, to be on the team. So whatever. Yeah. Reach out to me. Awesome. And all of that will be down in the show notes below. If you guys enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, rate it five stars. It helps bring great guests like Danielle out to it. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.